I've spent the last three years learning from some of the most ingenious fund managers around. And now I've decided to take the plunge and start my own fund. The real question is, how will I do it? With no investors and without an Ivy League degree, this podcast is going to give you the answer. Join me and follow along as I share mine and other stories as we start and build multi-million dollar investment funds. I'm Bridger Pennington, and this is Investment Fund Secrets. Boom, people. Welcome back to the show. Today we got with us Daniel Kwok uh, with the Kwok Brothers YouTube channel. These guys are incredible. Daniel got, is it 83 doors by 23? Is that right? Yes, sir. 83 by 23. 83 doors, units by 23. Immigrated to this country when his brother grew up with nothing and were able to do this. Also, author of this book, Zero to 75 Units in One Year. Daniel, honored to have you on here. It's going to be very fun to chat today. Uh, you're currently running syndications, doing real estate, doing a lot of things there. So I think in this interview, people that are listening to it, you, you can lean a lot from Daniel, what he's done. A true, I think there's a lot of, before I let you talk for a second, it's a lot of rags to riches people that want to have rags to riches stories online. Um, and I just leaned into my story and just said, Hey, my dad's rich. I know he's rich. <laughs> I know he's rich, but he is. And that's, that's my thing. Cause I just, yeah. a lot of everyone wants that rags to riches story, but you guys have this incredible, last time we talked, this incredible story of Thank how you. you and your brother really grew up in, in a poverty type of situation and uh, real pot, not like a fake Instagram, whatever, pro- like actual poverty. And uh, we're able to 20, I mean, 83 units at 23 years old is just incredible. So with all that being said, Daniel, welcome to the show. Happy to have you on. Yeah. Well, thanks, man. Yeah. I, I, I you know, it's weird. Like I don't tell people I have a rags to riches story because for, for me, it's like nobody, and this is just my opinion, but nobody ever truly grows up poor. Because even if you do go up, grow up broke, well, you learn a lot of the lessons that are priceless, right? So, like, for me, it's just like, you don't have to have a rags to riches story. Just tell your story. Just be authentic. You know, like, that, I think that's for me, like, that's what kind of scratches my head a little bit when people are like, oh, like, I, I grew up in the ghettos of Beverly Hills. And, you know, I, you know, I, my, I couldn't afford a Ferrari 380. All I could do is get the 280. So it's like, well, no, man, it's like, it's, it's all good, you know, because the things that I learned as a kid of just, you know, the, the immigrant mentality and just, you know, it came very naturally to me. Um, so for me, when I meet colleagues who, who grew up, you know, with more resources for me, like, I don't, I don't look down or I don't think of their story as any different. At the end of the day, we all wear our pants one leg at a time. Um, but having said that, I'm honored to be here. You know, I'm a big fan because I mean, you know, you and I are very similar. We're, we're very similar in age. We're both very faith based. Um, and you know, we're both, and you got a kid on the way, man. That's awesome. I've been seeing, I've been looking at your Instagram. How excited are you? Oh, it's going to be crazy. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to be a dad. And so I got a be a son on the way. I'm, I'm hyped. Yeah. It's going to be pretty fun. So it's a whole new, whole new world. So, well, Daniel, get us in, let's get into this story a little bit. I, I let's, you know, for people listening, like immigrant, how does it, how does this kid move to the United States and go from zero to 83 doors at 20? Yeah. Give it, talk us through that, that story. How you guys got started. Yeah. So we immigrated here when I was five years old. My dad's a preacher. So I'm a preacher's kid, you know, and our, our, our story would it kind of look like sleeping in the car multiple times because we couldn't afford to pay the heating bill. Uh, you know, I remember there was one time we were at the park and we were all just we were playing, having a great time. And I saw my mom uh, picking up like weeds and a certain flower. And in my mind, I'm like, oh, that's great. You know, she's going to give that to my dad. And, you know, they, they love each other. And that's awesome. 
And later at dinner, I find that that's what we're eating, right? Like I find that on our dinner plate. I was like, wow, like, you know, and, but for me, I, I just never didn't, I, I never think that was, I didn't think that was weird. Uh, I always thought that was just what's normal. Um, I just thought every kid grew up like that. So, you know, when you grow up poor, you learn poor. So fast forward, I'm 18 years old. I had negative $187.65 in my bank account, had a maxed out credit card. And that's when I decided to do something about it. Because I was like, man, I can't, I can, you know, no one's going to come and help me, right? Like the government's not going to help me, right? A lot of people in our generation want the government to come help them. But I made the decision, the government's probably not going to come and help me. You know, Uncle Joe ain't there with, you know, a plate of food. So um, I decided to... Uh, First and foremost, pray because I'm a very faith-based man. You know, I got down on my knees and I asked God, like, God, there's got to be a different way. There's got to be a different solution. And for me, I don't care if you grow up rich, poor, black, white, purple, doesn't matter. You know, everybody has that one moment where you just feel like a loser. You feel like, you know, kind of a screw up. And it's like, ah, I don't know what to do. And you kind of have to surrender. And that's the epitome. That's the epiphany moment where you realize that it's not about the resources. It's always about the resourcefulness. And you start integrating your own internal culture. And what I say is the culture is, is the values plus action steps. So for individuals listening to this, right, you have a big audience of individuals that want to start a fund. This is no easy task, right? Well, for you, you make it, you make it look easy, right? Because of your courses, your teaching. But for, for if you really think about it, like if you're in a fund, I had a billionaire once told me, Daniel, you got to start a fund. Unless you're starting a fund, like you're not part of the big boy club. If you want to sit at the big boy table, you got to have a fund. That's just the way things work in the finance world, in the real estate world. So a lot of the people who watch your content, listen to your content, they're big thinkers. They're big dreamers. To the people listening to that right now and, and resonating with what I'm saying, is like, hey, I'm a big thinker. I'm in the car right now listening to this podcast. I'm a big thinker. These are the individuals that absolutely need to have that epiphany, absolutely need to have that internal culture set because the biggest problems and the biggest traps a lot of times guys like me and you face is we love going 100 miles per hour. But a lot of times we turn 40, we turn 50, we turn 60. And many of us realize that we've been running in the wrong direction. So we've been really, we've been running really fast, but we've been climbing up the wrong tree our entire life. So have that set of values initially. So, you know, at 18, that's what I realized. You know, God kind of instructed me uh, to have a set of core values for myself. Power, what's where you at? I'm a freshman in college at that point, right? Yeah. So I'm a freshman in college. And then that's, that's the day, you know, I think it was like fall of my freshman year. That's when I looked down at my phone and I saw that negative number in my bank account. So I decided to have my set of values. And, and um, I was always intrigued with real estate because ever since I was a kid, I've always wanted to do things for God. Like I wanted to build hospitals and, you know, build uh, all sorts of things, right. To help people around the world. And I got smarter, right? I, I realized God didn't want any of that, right? He, he didn't want me to do things for him. He didn't want me to do things because of him. He, he wanted to do things with me. So that's when I started conversating a lot. I, you know, I, I tell people all the time, I understand a lot of people on, uh, listening to this may not be faith-based, but this is just who I am. Uh, I tell people that's the time when I stopped believing in Jesus and I started actually following him. And I started actually doing the things he told people to do. Right. Like, don't worry about tomorrow and, you know, love your enemies and do these things. So um, I found a mentor. I was always interested in real estate because um, I knew that out of the top one percent, I read an article from Forbes that 76 percent of people made their money in real estate. Um, so I was like, I had to get into real estate. So I found a mentor six months later uh, and I bought every educational course I possibly could. Like 
I love it that people listen to your podcast, but I tell people all the time, if you want to succeed in real estate, you've got to submerge yourself. Like the people who succeed at whatever they do, whether it's you, whether it's, I mean, it could be Mr. Beast with YouTube, right? It could be whatever. I mean, these guys submerge themselves and almost to the point of insanity. So that's what I started doing. I, I get up at 6, 7 a.m. in the morning, wouldn't go to sleep till 1 or 2 in the, uh, in the well, again, in the morning. Um, and I would just be obsessed. I would learn about real estate investing. And ultimately, I wanted to answer the question, why did my family grow up poor and other families didn't? So I just got pretty much obsessed. Podcasts, books, started shadowing people, bought every course, program, coaching you can think of, uh, which in hindsight, maybe that wasn't the smartest idea because I bought a lot of the courses with credit cards. My brother and I would call our credit card company and we begged them to increase the line. So we buy education. So that's kind of how I started. That's, that's kind of where the shift happened for me. So, wow, that's, that's incredible. So you're 18. You're buying courses, you're consuming, engulfing real estate. You and your brother. Um, what what was the leap? Because there's a lot. There's there's something to say of of learning, but then actually doing right. And I love how you said you were you were a you were a follow. I think you said you were a follower of Christ, but then you became a disciple of Christ. Is that how yeah, you- I went from a believer to an actual follower. Yeah, oh, a believer to a follower. I love that. And I, that there's a shifting point, whether it's faith whether it's in real estate, whether it's in relationship. So what was it? So we saw that in, in faith. Now in real estate, yeah. what was the shift? What made you go from zero to one? Yeah. So one of the things that really scared me is that I belong to a lot of different networking groups at the time. And who you surround yourself obviously is number one, right? I mean, the, the, the plant can only grow as good as the soil and the sunlight and the water, you know? So everybody has a seed within them, right? It's in their hearts and their minds and their soul. So number one was surrounding myself with people who are like-minded, and, and not only surrounding myself with people who are like-minded, but figuring out how to do that on a weekly, daily basis. So I f- intentionally found networking groups that met every single week. So there was one that met every Thursday night. There was one that met every Wednesday night. There was one that met every two, a Monday night. And I would just religiously, it was like church, right? Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't miss it, man. You know, like I don't miss church, you know, you don't miss temple. And it's just like, you know, and, and then my Hindu friends, they don't miss, you know, and Jewish friends, they don't miss synagogue. So for me, I just religiously, no pun intended, started showing up. I was like, I got to go. This is this is the discipline. So but what scared me as I started doing that is I noticed a lot of individuals, you know, I would ask how their week was every single week, you know, and some weeks would be great. Some weeks would be good. Some weeks would be bad. It'd be okay, Right. Just fine, et cetera, et cetera. And I started breaking down why that is, because I was never interested in producing average results. For me, that was that was never the interest. So I reverse engineer myself. I was like, well, if I don't want to produce average results, I got to be an above average person in terms of my work ethic and how to work hard and also work smart. So I, I remember there was one moment where uh, I set a goal for myself. This was January 1st of 2017. And I wrote on a sheet of paper because that's what everybody did, right? You got to conceive, believe, achieve, right? So I wrote it. I wrote it on, for sure. So I wrote it on a piece of paper. Like I, Daniel Kwok, have 20 units and it's December 31st of 2017, right? So it's 365 days later. And I showed it to my mentor and my mentor says, stop, don't do that. I'm like, whoa, like, what do you mean? And he said, don't set goals, set standards and expectations. So the way that, you know, I became a follower of real estate investing and not just a believer was I started instituting daily disciplines. And, you know, we call those KPIs, right? Your key performance indicators. I set a standard and expectation for myself on what I was going to do every single day. 
And so, you know, I read an article around that time about Michael Phelps. And Michael Phelps says, a great day for any other Olympian is an average day for me because of what the disciplines and the motivation that I give myself. So, you know, I started having some KPIs, stuff like, you know, I'm going to reach out to one person every single day and ask what they need in their business. Because for me, you know, it's like if you're investing in real estate, you got to invest in people. That's what real estate's all about. You invest in people, you don't invest in properties. You invest in people and their problems, not the properties. So I started asking like, hey, what are some things that I could do for you? And, you know, in about a year, I had asked about 600 people that question. Right. So I would literally have a notepad because, I, you know, this is pre-COVID PC. So I had the ability to actually like ask people face to face. And I'd ask them like, hey, what are some of the biggest challenges you have in your business right now? And I realized that some of these biggest problems could be solved by mere introductions of people I already knew. Like the problems could be solved literally in the same building, but these guys just weren't talking to each other. So that was one of my KPIs. Another one was, man, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Well, no, I was going to ask, yeah, what, what were some of these KPIs? I love I love the concept of a daily habit, daily ritual. And, uh, you know, a lot of people do different things. I love the concept of of your excellent and your standard is what's going to get you there faster than anything else than just a big lofty goal. Um, yeah. Yeah, walk us through some other KPIs. Yeah, so my, my KPIs too is, so I knew that networking was going to be the bridge to anything. It's going to be the bridge to finding deals. It's going to be the bridge to raising capital. And sure enough, right? Like I asked uh, this one time, it was the first time it ever happened. I asked him, uh, I forgot his name, but he was like, I think it was Todd. It was Todd. So I said, hey, Todd, you know, you're an orthopedic surgeon. You make half a million dollars a year. Like, what are some of your biggest struggles if you have any, right? And he says, well, like it just so happens that last week I had a conversation with my CPA and he's telling me that I need to buy some real estate because I need depreciation to offset my investment income. So it's like, if you can find a deal for me, that, you know, it's really well. And you can find somebody to manage it. And if you can find somebody to do all the work, I'll put up all the money. So I started meeting people like that. And that one KPI, you know, produced so many different actions, right? And they would say activity brings more activity. So that was one. Another one was um, mandatory, like two hours a day, no matter what. I'm going to either read a book, podcast, courses, coaching, shadow, no matter what you name it. Two hours every single day was the minimum. On average, I did about four or five. Um, but, you know, I, I, that would that'd be my mandatory KPI. So there was a the networking aspect. There was the uh, self-discipline aspect of actually learning. Uh, and then there was also just even finding deals, right, at my own time. So I used to do this thing called driving for rent signs. So I'd drive around and I'd look at for rent signs in certain neighborhoods. And I would call the sign and I would ask if they'd be interested in selling the property. And I'd do that three, four hours every single week. So for people listening, I'd say have a daily KPI, have a weekly KPI. And have a monthly KPI to make sure that you're headed in the right direction and what you're doing is the best use of your time. Because, you know, obviously in this day and age, if you want to compete, you know, you got to work hard and you got to work smart too. Hey, I want to ask you a follow-up question on there. I, I think a lot of people, I, myself included, I get, I'll listen to someone like you and you're, I love how motivating you are into the, and I just love it. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do KPIs and I get into it. And what I'll do is write out too many of them. You know, I've got eight KPIs for the day. And what happens, I stop doing them or I forget after day six. What's some, some, and I, I love, I love what you said. Action brings forth more action. And there's this snowball effect that happens when you start to move in towards a direction and, and things start to, to happen for your good, I guess is a good way to say that. What are some things that you've seen? Make sure you are disciplined on those KPIs and following up with them to get action, creating more action, that momentum rolling. Yeah, no, that's a great question. You know, um, I always say that's the difference between the question that you just asked, right? Like that's the that's the million dollar question that answers that addresses like the difference between busy and being productive. 
So I'll be very honest with like, right, you and I are both the same age. Um, and I think you've been married to your wife the same amount of years, I think, that I've been married to mine. Yeah, so about the same, yeah. um, I thought I thought that getting married was going to decrease my efficiency and my productivity in my business. Because before I got married, when I was, you know, single or when I was dating, like I would literally work probably like 12, 14 hours a day, you know, sometimes even 16. Like that was normal for me. Um, like it'd just be all I think about. It'd be all it'd be all I dream about. Right. Like I was all about it. So when I got married, you know, my, my wife and I, we had to set some boundaries. Right. And uh, we had to say, all right, like how many hours? And my wife's cool. Right. Like she's also very hardworking individual. So she gets it, you know. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to limit myself to 10 hours a day because, you know, we have to invest in our relationship. Like you are now priority number one, you know, right below God. And so we got to make this work. So I thought my productivity was going to go down. It actually didn't. It actually put me in a position where I was forced to eliminate some KPIs that I had because mm-hmm. I was like, because I looked at all the KPIs like, oh, these are too important. Like, like I got this investor from that because of that KPI. And, and what it allowed me to do is it allowed me to start thinking smarter uh, and not relying on time. So when, when you're in a position where you have a lot less time, so like I even have coaching clients today that who are like, well, Daniel, I only have 10 hours a week. I say, that's great because now those 10 hours, like you're going to find ways. Now you're going to wrestle, right? Like you're going to find ways to make that 10 hours more productive than other people's 80 hours or other people's 70 hours. And like that right there, that process is going to carry you through for many, many, many years. So I started combining my KPIs together. It's like, what are ways I can kill two birds with one stone? And then that led to me learning how to actually delegate. Like people talk about delegation all the time, but people don't do it the right way. Um, you got to know what are the best things for you to delegate personally. So that's what I started doing. I started getting smarter and more efficient. That's no, that's what you just said is spot on. I, I felt the same thing when I got married as well. I was a little bit worried. I didn't know how things would go. I actually talked, actually, when I got married, I, my wife, I sat down with her and I said, I asked her, what's your risk tolerance? Because mine's decently high. Like I'm, I'm yeah. ready to go. And she, and I, and I was like, just so you know, if we're, if we're going to get married, you got to understand, like, I, we just got to be on the same page as risk tolerance and, and what we're going to do as a, you know, being married to an entrepreneur and, uh, marry, marry my wife. Actually, I, I made a post about this the other day was actually one of the most beneficial things for my business. What it did for me and, and to your point as well for time management, but it also made me more focused. I was way more focused because I had a purpose and someone else to, I got to bring the bacon home, you know, for somebody yeah. else. And it's just not just me. I got to provide, I got to be the, the, the guy that's going out and, and doing it for my wife. And I've, you know, if, if we've got to be, she wants me done working at 6 PM. Well, I'm going to work way harder between 1 PM and six than I ever did. Because when I was in college, I would just like you, I, you know, I just kind of kind of work into the night, you know, into eight, nine, ten, whatever. I just kind of work. And I feel like I was being productive when in reality, I wasn't getting much done. I was acting like I was getting a lot of done. And I'd be cool to tell my friends, oh yeah, I was up working on my business till 10 PM last night. It's like, no, that's dumb. Like I could have got yeah. all that done before five or six, but I wanted to be cool. And anyways, it taught me a lot of those things. And my wife, actually, it's, it's almost like one plus one equals three. It's been incredible. So to your point, that's, uh, I think that's spot on. So, okay, Daniel, back to the, the story. So you're, you're there, you've got the KPIs, you're reaching out to investors, you find um, some wealthy individuals that want to deploy capital with you. What happens next? Yeah. So first, I think we got to talk about a mindset shift because there's a lot of people I'm assuming. Right. And you've seen this a lot. I personally seen a lot of my coaching clients or the people that I've mentored and coached in the past. But a lot of people say this. Has anyone ever told you, 
Bridger, I feel so uncomfortable asking people for money. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm sure like you hear it all the time. And I tell, I tell people like you have to have the mindset shift first, right? Like, like that's what has to happen. You know, like even, even with my faith base, right? I, I tell people all the time, like God was the first ever creator. Like he was the first ever entrepreneur. Because guess what he started? He started Earth, right? Like that was his business venture. So, you know, for me, it's got to start with the mind. And I tell people all the time, like I give this like example. I said, who do you think there's more of? Do you think there's more individuals? Let's say with at least $150,000 in their investment account that they're able to invest with you or any other opportunity. Do you think there's more people like that? Or do you think there's more people specifically in real estate, but it could be whatever you want. Do you think there's people in the real estate industry that actually know what they're doing, have a team around them, have a coach who can look at their deal, second pair of eyes, but an awesome business plan, did the market research, you, you, you did all the feasibility studies. Who do you think there's more of? And everybody always says, well, the, the expert, there's, there's a lot less experts than the people with you know at least $150,000, right? So I did a lot of traveling, right? Especially when I was in my early 20s, you know, teaching, training, real estate investing. I was At one point, I was doing like four cities a week. I, mean, I was getting no sleep. And, but it was great for like data collection. So in my, in my just personal experience and opinion, there's probably about for every one expert in real estate that actually knows what they're doing, there's probably between, I'd say maybe like 70 to 80 people that have at least $150,000 that they're able to invest in. So if you think about it like that, what's more valuable, their money or the opportunity that you are bringing to them? What's more valuable? And they're like, uh, the opportunity. That's great. That's a great place to start because I'm sure you'll, you know, you tell your students, I tell my students, like the biggest mistake that people make in raising capital and talking to wealthy individuals is neediness, mm-hmm. right? Like they feel like if they don't close the deal here, like their business is over, right? Like their business is done. The truth of the matter is like everybody wants to work with people that are, that, that, that like is almost like settling for the other individual, right? Like same thing with banks, like banks, banks want to work with people who don't need the banks, you know, wealthy people want to work with individuals that they don't need, you know, they don't need their money. Right. So I like that's the first concept that I need people to understand that it's like if you do that, like the techniques that you learn, like the books, podcasts, like it'll stick a lot easier. Right. It's like like the, the parable with Jesus and the seeds. Right. Like there's there's four different places that the farmer like spreads his seed. Right. The first is the concrete. You know, the, the it's too hard. It can't grow. And then the, the second one is it grows, but like this, the birds and then they, you know, they, they pick the seeds and they eat them up. And then, you know, the third one is that actually does indeed plant. Right. But the thorns choke it out. And a lot of times those thorns for our individual students, you name it. That's like the self-limiting belief. It's like, oh, like, like I got I need this guy, man. I need this person bad. Right. So a lot of raising capital, if, in my opinion, like half of it is just the art of not self-sabotaging. Um, people want opportunities. They're like asking for it. Really, if you just put yourself out there and you have the right mindset, I, I've seen people who are not very smart in real estate raise tons of money. Uh, and that's because they have a, a sense of confidence that I think they shouldn't have. But it's like that sense of false confidence. It's like, oh, I got this. It's a belief in myself. And it's not bad to believe in yourself, but it's also not bad to believe in your strategy, your system, the people you have around you. Like my opinion, believing in both those things is a much safer bet. Dude, that Dan, that's spot on. That is spot on of uh, on that. I love how you brought that up. Just the most people just first off, they have this limiting belief. There's not a lot of capital out there. Just people just don't think that. And I would totally agree with you. I would I would even say it could be higher than that. You said 78 yeah. to one. Um, of capital, especially in this last year, everyone's flush right now. 
yeah. looking to play capital into good deals. And then secondly, I love what you mentioned there of if if you have the expertise and you have a great deal, and I always I always tell our people like find the great deal and the money will find you that you'll 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 become a great salesman or a great capital raiser when you have a great deal because your confidence lies in the deal. And this, I love how you brought up the self-sabotage. That's so true. If you can just show up confidently, hey, we've got this fantastic deal. You would be lucky to get in on this deal. Uh, that solves, I think, you know, eight out of 10 of your questions when going out and raising capital to your point. Um, anything else you'd add on there for people that are that are struggling to, you know, I'm not a natural born salesman or I don't know how to, to ask for money. Anything else on there? Yeah, I, th- I think that's hogwash. Like everyone's a great salesperson. You know, I mean, like, Everybody like they, they sell all the time. Like we're always selling, right? If you watch a great movie, like you're going to talk about it, but like people, people just see the authentic passion that you have. And, you know, and people are like, well, Daniel, what if I'm not confident in a deal? Well, if you're not confident in a deal, chances are that deal might suck. You know, it's like, you, you probably don't that. want to do it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You probably, exactly. Like even the wealthy, like the wealthy individuals, the ones that are smart, the ones that are sophisticated investors, you know, like a lot of times, like they can tell, they can tell like, oh, this guy's nervous, this guy's, but the deal is phenomenal. Yeah. I'll still invest. You know, like the what the big whales that you want anyways in your corner, like these are the guys who sent it anyway. So, you know, I, I'd say, you know, obviously people lack confidence. Well, your your confidence should come from your competence, right? That's where I believe true confidence should come from. You know, your competence, your ability to listen to, you know, Bridger's courses or my courses or anybody's courses and, and, and inhale that information and submerge yourself in it, you know, and you become competent. I think that's where that's where that confidence should come from. That's spot on. And money loves confidence. I tell you that all the time. Money loves confidence. Um, I think that's perfect. So you had this mindset shift of raising capital. Um, and then I'm guessing you used that and, and parlayed that into your into your next venture. And did you, what, what happened there? Did you buy a first property? What did you do? Yeah. So I, I did a lot of uh, raising capital initially, right? Because for me, it's like, that was one of my biggest fears, right? It's like, oh, like, if I don't have like if I don't have the capital, right, but I have the deal, like that's gonna look bad on me. You know, I wanna get this reputation of the guy that can't close. And so, you know, people ask me all the time, like, well, how'd you raise the capital without the deals? Cause a lot of my investors are saying, you know, like, well, you know, find a deal and let's take a look at it and I'll invest. Well, what I kind of did is, you know, I didn't recruit investors, I recruited relationships. You know, I, I made friends as opposed to, you know, and, and that's a, there's a difference there. Like when you're raising capital, you focus on the person's ability to put money in your fund. But when you're recruiting relationships, like you genuinely care about the person, you know, and it creates a lot of trust and sure there's a lot of benefits to it. But uh, I, I put a lot of that money into owner financing deals. So initially, and I had no choice, right? Because when you're 22 years old, you know, you have no, you have really bad credit. You have no income. Your DTI is horrible. Um, every commercial lender I talk to will like literally laugh at me. Like you, like you're going to get an investment loan. Like, Good luck, buddy. Right. I don't know what bank is doing that, uh, but I had no choice. So I started doing seller financing. So what I did was actually a little unique. And it's something that I teach to my, my clients, you know, students, et cetera. I talk a little bit about it on my YouTube channel, uh, but I talk about the art of reverse engineering value. So what people mean by that is like what, what I mean by that is people are like, well, you always have to give value, give value. Well, value is relative, right? Like if you offered me you know, tickets to go see Justin Bieber, chances are I much prefer to, you know, sit at home with my wife and watch a TV show or watch, you know, an episode of The Chosen, right? Or like, but if you offer me like tickets to go see, you know, like the comedian, like Tom Segura or like Andrew Schultz, I'm like, ooh, like 
I'm in for that, right? Like sign me up hundred percent. So it, the value is really relative. So for me, what I did is I said, well, I have to buy property seller financing. There's no other way. Okay. So what are the things that, what are the benefits? Way, of I love the chosen. I love the dude. It's, is, isn't it, isn't it amazing? Seriously. Incredible. If you guys oh, so incredible. The chosen, just go search the chosen. They, these guys put together this, this TV series on the life of Jesus. And it's just, it's so well done. It's pretty, it's just like, I'd spot yeah. Oh, dude, it gave me goosebumps, like chills watching even that first if you're not episode. Religious, go watch yeah. it. Like it, it. I think it'll change your life, even if you're not religious. It's an incredible, incredible show. So, little yeah, side shows in there. I love it. Yeah, shout right. Shout out to the chosen, yeah, real quick. Real. Yeah. So, so I said, I said to myself, well, like, what are the biggest benefits of seller financing, right? Because I'm reverse engineering value. So I said, okay, it helps people with their tax taxes, right? It uh, it gives it it gives a certain lifestyle like individuals who want to have money coming in every single month as opposed to selling it in all one lump sum. You know, a lot of these individuals um, they want to make additional income, right? Because you know, by seller financing, you become the bank, so you make the extra four, five, six percent by walk being the bank. Through, walk us through seller financing real quick and how it all works. Yeah, yeah. So seller financing is when the seller carries the note for you, so they act as the bank. So, you know, what's beautiful about that is you get a lot more flexibility. So it's business. I say it's the business the way it's supposed to be done, right? Because all the terms are decided by you and the seller, a buyer and a seller, as opposed to having a middleman like the bank, right? So, you know, you decide your down payment, you guys decide, you know, interest rate, you negotiate everything, all the terms. So well, that's what it is, right? The, the seller carries a note for you, right? So, so going back, right? So if you have the benefits, right? So you got tax benefits, um, you have, you know, uh, passive income coming in every single month and you also have money that you make on interest. So I started going down all the benefits. I said, who are the individuals that will love every single one of these benefits, right? That like, these are the individuals that see these things as valuable. And what I got was older landlords, like landlords above the age of 65, because these individuals, chances are they own their property for a very long time which means they're going to have a big depreciation recapture. They're going to pay a lot in ordinary income tax and also capital gains tax. Because if they own the property for 25, 30 years, guess what happened to that piece of real estate? It increased in value, whether it increased due to inflation, whether it increased due to income, doesn't matter. It increases either way and you're paying capital gains. Uh, these are individuals who want passive income. Hmm, like, do they want to travel? Probably, right? They want to spend the golden years traveling with their kids, with their grandkids, et cetera, et cetera. Like they don't want to spend time working. Which means that they also want income. They want they want their money working for them. I.e., in this scenario, they're being the bank, and like they're smart enough to know that banks a lot of times are the richest entities in our world, right? Like there's a reason why like companies like Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan, and Chase like they're some of the most powerful organizations in the United States. You know, let alone the rest of the world. So. I asked myself that question, who, and then I got 65 and older, older landlords. And then I started asking myself, what is the best way to reach these individuals? Hmm. It's probably not TikTok. It's probably not Snapchat. It's probably not social media of any kind, right? It's probably newspapers and for rent signs out in, you know, in front of the door. So sure enough, I created KPIs around those things. And I said, you know what? I'm going to call at least... 10 for rent signs. I'm going to call at least five newspaper for rent ads. And I'm going to have a total of 15 potential leads every single week. And, you know, pretty easy, right? You get those calls done, right? Two, you know, an hour or two. Like I would actually go out and, and drive around because I wanted to see these properties face to face. So I would spend three, four hours a week just doing that. And sure enough, like 70, 75% of every person that, you know, answered the call 
were older landlords. And again, sure enough, when we sat down, I said, Hey, would you, would you want to have a conversation? And that's what I learned too, is you got to, you initially, especially your yeses have to be very small. Right. So like, instead of saying, Hey, would you want to sell the property? Right. Like that's, a, that's a really big thing for somebody to get. Yeah. But it's, I would say, Hey, would you want to have a 30 minute conversation at a coffee shop about what you selling your property would look like? Right. That's a very smaller. Yes. That's 30 minutes. Right. Like people can spare 30 minutes. So uh, sure enough, right, a lot of them owned their property for a very long time. And it just kept going backwards in terms of what I reverse engineered. So for me, like I ended up having a lot more efficient process of getting properties and getting deals because I already did the work and I already did the research and reverse engineering what the win-win was for me and for them. Jeez, I love it. <laughs> so you're getting 15 leads a week. These, you know, I love the, the concept of micro yeses, right? A lot of little yeses lead up, usually lead up to a big yes. Um, and then were you, for the down, using the, the other individual's money and cash for that down payment? Or yeah, I was. I was. So, so the, the investors put up the money. So they put up closing yeah. costs, the down payment, right? So you're, you're, you have $0 in the game or, or rel- relatively close, but you're controlling a property now. Yeah. And, and uh, how big are these properties, right? Is it, you know, are they... Are you looking at multifamily as a single family? What were you looking at? Yeah, so I, I had a single family portfolio. That was my first deal portfolio of four single family houses. But, you know, I eventually got into like the 20, 30 unit buildings. So, I mean, it's great because we bought them four years ago. We raised the rents. You know, obviously, market rent has changed quite a bit. And I actually sold them right before COVID. Um, so I, I sold my, I actually sold them on seller financing. So I sold it on a note. Um, and I sold it right before COVID. So, it was it was great, but my my mind for some reason just went to one of the most common objections, which people say like, "Hey, do you have any money invested into these deals?" Right? Like, I'm sure you've gotten that objection. I certainly get that objection. Uh, a lot of investors are like, "Well, what are you going to put in?" Right? So this is kind of what I explain. Right? So I I tell my investors, "Well, ma'am or sir, right? Uh, I believe there are four currencies in life. Right? There's time, there's people, there's money, and there's knowledge. What you are inputting into this deal is money. I'm putting in the other three currencies." For me, time, right, it's limited, right? We can't make any more time. The network, right, I've spent years accumulating the network that I have, is accumulating a team, et cetera, et cetera. And also the knowledge. I'm pretty sure at this point, I spent well over 10,000 hours at this topic of real estate investing. So I've done all three of these things. You put in just the money and I take care of the rest. Um, is that something that still bothers you? Is that something that, that troubles you? And usually people say, no, not, not really. You know, so I said, okay, great. Because at the end of the day, like, what are they really asking? Right? Like, do you have skin in the game? Right? Like, can I trust you? That's what they're really asking. Yeah. You know, so it, being able to see these individuals that's a, as that's human. That's a sweet answer. You're showing yeah. right up front. And, you know, and I, I tell people, you, I, I think you should have some skin in the game if you can. But if you, if yeah. you don't or if it's a smaller amount, that's a spot on answer, though, of it's, you know, thought out. There's four currencies. You know, I'm in the other three time connections and knowledge. And I, you know, that's a lot of resources I'm putting in. And, and that in, in a way says I've got skin in the game. I'm putting in yeah. the, those three things. I really like that. Uh, <laughs> that's awesome, Daniel. Yeah. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. Like I'm like today I, I put my own money in my deals, right? Yeah. Because I, I can, but back then, like I, I couldn't. So, you know, I, I had to, I had to not compensate, but I had to find other ways to communicate that, Hey, like I'm putting skin in the game here. Like, um, you know, whether it's signing my name on the loan, whether it's doing all the work, right? Blood, sweat, and tears. Like I'm putting in, you know, like effort, like I've got some skin. 
I'm curious, um, on more of a structural basis, how did you between your and you and your investor? There's a lot of different ways to structure a syndication type of a deal like that. Yeah. What do you do then and what are you doing now on those, if you mind sharing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so back then, you know, uh, I was syndicating capital, but I was doing it more on a smaller basis. So it's like I didn't have a 506C like I do today. Like I didn't, you know, issue out a PPM or a subscription agreement. Like so back then I would just put deals under LLCs and it's it's the same idea of reverse engineering. So if there's anything that I hope these listeners and, and the listeners, you know, to this podcast get out of today is your ability to reverse engineer the problem that you have into a value point. So what I did is I started, you know, asking a lot of potential investors, right? Because I was still going out networking, right? I found that a lot of individuals that I was networking with were high W-2 income earners and they needed the depreciation as much as the cash flow, if not more, you know, um, meaning that they, they had to be an equity partner, right? They're like, there was no mezzanine route. There was no debt investing route. Like they wanted the depreciation as bad as the cash flow. So for me, I, I sort of reverse engineering like, well, if a lot of my investors are doctors, if they're high W2 income performers, like what is the best solution for them? So I married, right? Like I integrated, okay, what is the market telling me? Um, and what are my investors telling me? And I drew, I still remember doing this. I drew a Venn diagram, right? What the market's telling me, what the investors are telling me. And on the left, right, I put like, all right, this is what's happening in the market. There's this statistic in this local market. There's developments here, right? Like, and I always tell people, like, look at the supply and demand. If you're doing market research, simply this, look at the supply and demand. What is demand? Well, what has rental trends been over the last five years? Is it on the uptrend? Is it on the downtrend, right? How strong are your tenant bases? Is there an employer? Is it an employer that dominates a most variety of the job market? And if so, how are you going to mitigate that risk? And then there's also the supply, as in it's very easy to go on the county website and figure out how many units are being rehabbed, how many units are being developed, how many units are being built. Uh, I built phenomenal relationships with property managers to verify the data that I was collecting. So I would collect data and then I would you know, talk to a property manager who's been there for 25 years. And he'd be like, uh, that's right. That's right. No, I haven't really seen that much. So verify the data on one hand and on the other investors, I would have, you know, a lot, a lot of one-on-one sit-downs with potential investors. And I would ask them, you know, what are you looking for? What will be the greatest value to you financially if you were to get involved with the real estate transaction? And, you know, depreciation, sure enough, was on top of the list, right? Second was cash flow. And the third was like, well, I want a good amount of principal pay down because, you know, I got invested in other things. I invest in stocks, bonds. I want to really do something and take advantage of that real estate, the tangible thing. So sitting down, drawing that out, I was able to identify... Oops, sorry, give me one second. I was able to identify uh, the things in the middle. Like, what are the things in the middle that these individuals want? And so, therefore, it was easy for me to find the deals because this is what the market was saying, right? And on the other hand, like, this is what the investors wanted anyway. So, there was really not much selling I had to do. Hmm. That's So, I love that. That Back to when we were talking about pitching investors, too. I mean, that's that's perfect. You're just adding supply and demand. I love, you know, the Wolf of Wall Street, the classic, sell me this pencil, right? Yeah. Sell me this pen. That's exactly what it is. Uh, to to sell it, that's that's essentially what you just said right there. Even though I I actually don't love that show, but um, <laughs> anyways, the uh, uh, the concept is is there. So um, okay, that now I want to ask uh the question. So back that you know you got first couple of deals going. It seems like you scaled pretty hard. You went you went all out and um. And scale, or, or actually, sorry, wait, to go back, did you, did, did we answer the question of structuring it? Did you guys, how much was the equity split that you guys split? Oh, God. 
Yeah, yeah so the equity, the equity yeah, split was, split. yeah, the equity split back then was 50-50. And then today, uh, I actually offer my LPs 100% ownership in the fund. And we just make our money through just, you know, fees. Mm, okay. Gotcha. And just a management fee or do you guys take carried interest, stuff like that? Or what do you guys do? No, so we, we take a performance fee, meaning that, you know, we don't make money unless the, the portfolio performs as, as investors expect. And then we do an acquisition fee and then we do a management fee. And that's, yeah, that's what we do. Gotcha. Cool. Really cool. So 50-50 on the original days and, and investors were cool. Yeah, they loved, and it was 50-50 of just all part profits just got split, right? Yeah. And what, so what I used to do is, you know, I, again, I'm going to go back to reverse engineering. I would ask them, like, what are the returns that you would want? Like in a perfect world, like what returns would you get? Like, are you getting 7%? Okay, was, would you allow prefer eight and a half, eight? And I would pretty much with the deals that I'd find, I'd, I'd find out like, well, if this building has a 16% cash on cash return uh, and my investors want eight, I got to give them 50%. That's how I would do it. And uh, I actually used to give my investors all the depreciation. I used to give them 100%. Because uh, for me, it's like, well, I don't, I'm not going to need it as much as they do. So uh, I was I was I wasn't very hesitant to to give to these guys. But I think it's a great concept of especially on your first few deals. Yes, that makes you a little bit money. The bigger picture though is it builds you a great track record. It builds yeah. you credibility as a person that's good at managing money, that's good at working with investors, that is honest, that does what they say they're going to do, and gets good returns. And uh, you know, people always get bugged out when I talk to them. They just get bugged out on on fees and commissions and every you know every dollar. And I'm like. Guys, this is your first deal. This is your first even fund. I would err on the side of pleasing your investors and doing what's best for them because yeah. you're in this for the long game. You're in this for the next, you want your reputation over the next 25 years to be amazing. And yeah, you take a little bit of a loss now for yourself personally, your pay potentially to have huge gains in the future. Um, I think that's spot on. So, okay, so Daniel, I want to ask about scaling. So, you, you know, most people, do a deal or they do two deals and they're, or they're managing two or three properties. I'm like, this is great. I want to cash. I want to make sure this works out. You know, your book is titled, I got to zero to 75 units in one year. Okay. <laughs> and it seems like you scaled pretty quickly. Uh, what's the process in there? Is it, it just rinse and repeat and keep scaling up? And is there a level that it's too much? Or, and, and I love that you did that, that you went for the scale piece. Walk us through that. Yeah. So, so one of the things I learned very quickly is one of the biggest bottlenecks of scaling is, is usually two things for a lot of people. Uh, number one is their uh, capacity of management, right? So some people are like, well, I can only manage 30 units or 40 units. Uh, and it's also raising capital, right? Like, so people like they have the management structure and they have the deals, but they struggle to raise capital. Usually nine times out of 10, it's one of those two things, either management or raising capital that prevents them from actually being able to scale. So uh, I got in this habit of one of my favorite ways of, of finding deals is to um, build relationships with property managers. And I talk about it a little bit in the book and I actually break it down pretty well in the book. But what I would do is I would build relationships with property managers and I'd ask them, what are some of the biggest problems you have in your business? Property managers would say, well, like I don't like clients leaving my business, right? Because unless I have a certain number of units I manage, I can't keep my office afloat. And I, I, would, I would ask them, like, how would you like to have a scenario, scenario situation where you always have a certain number of units that you're going to manage? And they're like, what do you mean? And I said, well, like next time one of your clients wants to sell a building, they want to exit the real estate game, like have them call me. And if you're a good manager, I'll utilize your management services. And worst case scenario, like if we don't work out as a manager, like I'll pay you a broker's commission, right? Because if they have a managing broker's license, like they manage properties, they have a broker's license, they can represent 
whatever they want. Um, so that's the arrangement that I would have. And um, one property manager and I at the time really kind of just hit it off. You know, like he had a lot of experience, like he's been in the game for over 40 years and, and I wanted to learn from him. And so we actually decided to partner together What I would actually give him a little bit of equity in, in the deals uh, and we would work together. He'd be the property manager. I'd be in charge of underwriting, raising capital and, and kind of just doing what a real estate investor does. So I did that. And so for me, it was really easy to um, scale. And then my brother, my brother started learning a lot of things on how to automate property management. So, you know, that made it even easier for us, for me, at least to do what I do best, right? Which is raise money, find deals, underwrite them, you know, quarterback the whole structure. Gotcha. Really cool. That's that smart to you know, partner, partner with a great manager and partner with a great group. I, uh, man, I love, man, I love that. I just love hearing your story and what you've done and what you guys have grown. Um, I think it says a lot about obviously your grit and your grind. And you can tell just by the way you talk, how, how self-educated you are and how much you have put into yourself. I want to ask a question. Well, and, and, uh, this, anyways, we'll, we'll just go with it, but thoughts on the immigrant mentality that was, that was put in you as a kid. I've actually, I've read a few books. There's one called the triple package. Another one. Um, I haven't, I haven't read this one, but the inconvenient minority talks about Asian Americans who, and a lot of actually just immigrants in general who come to America and crush it absolutely are amazing at what they do. There's a huge disproportionate amount of successful Nigerians in the United States, successful Cubans, successful people from, I think you guys are Korean, correct? Yeah. 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 Korea. There's certain groups that have, and that the triple package book talks about things in their culture that causes them to, in, in general, be, be very successful. It talks about uh, Jews and, and Mormons, things like that on top of Forbes 500 lists and Nigerians, things like that. There's just disproportionate groups that do very well. And so I want to ask you a question on, on that mentality growing up. What do you think, how do you think that affected you and your brother and, and for other people in that same situation? Yeah. So I, I tell people all the time, like, you don't, you don't need to be an immigrant to work hard. You know, uh, we, we all breathe the same air, you know, we all bleed the same blood, you know, we're all, we're all one obviously under Christ. Uh, which is at least what I believe. So, you know, for, for me, it's just like, well, like find what drives you. Like when I, when we, when our family first came to this country, like, like I remember I was sleeping in the backseat of the car and my parents were up front and, you know, this is one of the nights we're sleeping in the car because we couldn't afford to pay the heating bill. And I like distinctly remember my parents talking about like, they were worried about what they were going to do for food, what, you know, and then I remember like my mom even talking about retirement and all this stuff. And like, that just ingrained in my head you know, of, of like, oh my gosh, like this is like, this is life for us, you know? And I, I like, yeah, people say like, you're either driven by pleasure or you're driven by pain. And it's just that for, for me growing up, like I, I experienced the pain of not having, you know, of not having the resources. Um, and now I'm driven by, you know, the pains of other people, you know, because for me, it's like, well, like I've, I've got a car, I've got, you know, I, I've got a pretty good living situation. Like I have an office, like I have warm clothes. Like what more do I need? So, you know, today I'm driven more by the pain of other people not experiencing that uh, as opposed to me experiencing that. But, you know, figure, figure out if you think about what entrepreneurs do is like they change the world based on their image, based on what they see, what they envision. Um, I, I heard a story of uh, Walt Disney, right? Like the first ever like Disney World grand opening, like a historical event, right? And it talks about how Walt Disney had died, I think about two years beforehand. And 
his wife, Walt's wife, was asked to give the speech, right? Like the, the commencement opening speech of Disneyland. I don't know if it was world or land. Same thing for me anyways. Um, and somebody like right before she went up and spoke, he said to her, like, man, like, I really wish Walt would have seen this, what we're doing today. And one of the first things, like a true BA, right? Like she goes up there to the podium and she says, the reason why we're all here today is because Walt was the first one to see this. And like that, that hit me was like, I was like, wow, that's insane. Like, that's crazy. So for me, like the pain is what drove me to see a better vision for myself and also the people around me. So you don't need to be an immigrant. You don't need to grow up poor to have that. You know, you just got to find something that really drives you crazy, like that really irks you, something that, you know, makes you really uncomfortable as you sit in your seat, something that keeps you up at night. Right. Like for me, like literally God woke me up the other day and he he like and this is I've, I've never said this on a podcast. So like I can't. This is where I'm going. Right. But um, God literally woke me up the other day, like about a month ago. And I'm not a crier. Right. Like the last time I actually cried was probably eight years ago. The other month, I literally like, like I was like in the fetal position in my bathroom, just like weeping because for a second, like God took my heart out and put his heart in for specifically orphans. And like I had never cared about orphans, whatever. But like around that time, I had asked God to not only see things the way he sees things, but also feel what he feels and have a heart that he has. And God, again, like woke me up literally in the middle of the night and just gave me a heart for orphans. Wow. And like... Before that, give me a heart for, you know, uh, bruised and battered, you know, sex trafficked women. And it's great because there's an organization in Chicago and area called Naomi's House. Shout out to Simone, right? The executive director. And, you know, my, my brother and I, we started doing a lot of work with them. You know, we're planning on giving up. You know, we're planning on being annual givers. Uh, we're planning on helping them a lot with their structure and marketing. We, we, we invited them to our studio to use whatever they want. Um, so, you know, for me, I tell people like, if you want that immigrant mentality, I call it Mamba mentality. Cause I grew up a huge basketball fan, yeah. big Kobe fan. Um, you know, you just have to find something that really drives you crazy and then create a vision off of that pain. Um, and that, and that uh, hopefully a healthy pain, right? Like not literal pain, a healthy pain. Um, and, and just have that vision for yourself and then set KPIs and have people around you to really execute that vision. Sorry about Walt Disney. I never heard that before. He, oh. he saw this before all of us did. Um, and uh, I, I, yeah, I've had a few moments as well where God, God wakes you up, and uh, and in, and literally, you, He woke you up in the middle of the night, <laughs> but wakes you up more in a spiritual sense, and um, and does that for you as well. As as what I, I, what was the charity? Yeah, Na- Naomi's house. Naomi's house. Okay, because I've worked with a. Liberation Fund and Operation Underground Railroad are they're out of Utah and do a lot of stuff in that same space. Really cool. Um, how has uh, faith impacted your? I mean, it sounds like everything, but I want to hear a, maybe a specific example how faith has and gotten and helped you in your business and just driven you to do certain things. I'll just quickly story for us. I this this might sound cheesy, but I uh, literally for eighteen months multiple times I have a, so I, I'll pray and I'll have a prayer journal next to me when I pray and I'll just write down thoughts, whether it's me or the spirit or God, whatever. I just write them down. If there's it's something good, I'll just write it down. And I have through that journal, probably 18 where I was prompted. I felt spiritually prompted to start investment fund secrets, to start a program to help more people launch and scale funds. 
And um, I was like, that's kind of weird. I feel like, and most people think like, you know, you separate spiritual and business and, you know, you just separate things like that, right? And I, I am a believer that it's all intertwined because God cares about every piece of our life, right? All together and how we, and our businesses impact people and change people's lives for the good, hopefully. And uh, finally, I was like, okay, I, I, I'm not going to ignore this one more time. And it, was, it wasn't a great time to start it. It wasn't a great, I wasn't, it wasn't this perfect moment. And I had a guy in my show, he always talks about, he goes, a lot of people think of the perfect magic. Warren Buffett's going to call you and you're going to get an inheritance at the exact same time. And also your job, you have plenty of free time and that's the perfect moment to start your business. And it's just never going to happen, right? It's just never, that is never going to happen. It's always going to be inconvenient to move forward, start your business, to be an entrepreneur. And uh, it wasn't a convenient time for me. I was working a job in Silicon Valley. I was busy, you know, crazy hours. And I just said, enough's enough. We're starting this thing and um, I'm going to see where it goes. I'm going to have faith and, and, uh, and now, um, you know, I've had a number of experience outside of business for that and way more experiences there of, of you know, God shifting things in my life. But I, do you oh. have any examples in your life and, and how it's impacted your your businesses and how you structure things and, and done things? Yeah, I, I think one of the greatest moments in my business when I realized that God cares more about my clients than I do. Mm-hmm. Um, so that means for me, I have to focus on pursuing the heart of the Father. I have to pursue on what it means to have intimacy with Jesus Christ. And that word intimacy, right? It means to be made known. How can I, how can I be made more aware of what God is making himself known to me? And how can I then reciprocate and make myself known to God? Which is funny because God already knows everything about us. But it's the art of actually sharing that and making ourselves known that creates vulnerability and that creates intimacy with him. So for me, by creating intimacy, it allowed me to then align my heart with his and see my clients and see the people I network with the way that he does which is the complete opposite of what transactional business is, right? Most people are like, well, like I reach out to you, we transact, great, I get what I want, I get what you, you know, you get what I want, great, see you, like, goodbye, right? Like until next time we need something from each other. Um, it actually allowed me to start praying for these people, right? Even like before meetings, like, God, how do you want me to show up, right? How can I, how can I be you in this situation to this individual? Uh, what does that look like? And that has created, and, and, and this is not even something I thought was gonna happen, but, it created something where people are attracted to you, right? People are attracted to something, right? Because I, I have the firm belief that, you know, eventually everybody has this desire to know God. You know, we all do, right? Whether we, whether we admit it or not, like we all have this desire to know who is our creator. Why are we here? You know, so it, it allowed me to, to behave and think and, and love in a way where, you know, the way God does it. So, you know, it's, it's interesting enough. It's like I stopped focusing, you know, less on my business, more on that actual intimacy with Christ. And my business has done phenomenal. It's done great, you know, because I'm actually doing it in a way I'm showing up in a way where God wants me to do it. You know, I, I learned like God could care less about how much money I make. He cares more about how I do it. And he cares more about doing it with me. Right. I mean, he, even during like, you know, we had, we were having like a, a group one time where we talk about Jesus, we talk about leadership, personal development. We meet every Wednesday, which like, you know, it's literally in three hours when I meet them. Uh, and in the middle of us talking and having discussion, like, you know, the spirit, spoke to me, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and says, Daniel, I love what you're doing. They're like, I love that you're giving to all these charities, nonprofits. I love that you're growing your business. I love that you have, you know, the, the, the spirit in you of wanting to fight and get things done. And I love you doing all these great things for me. I just sometimes wish we could do it together. And that's the key, right? Like the key is it's, you're not incorporating faith into what you do. You're actually doing it with the author of your faith in what you do. So 
you know, for, for believers out there who resonate with at least what we believe. And, you know, I, I think that's a great way, great way to make sure you're running 100 miles, but in the right direction. Hmm, that's really cool. What Christian sect do you belong to or what what's what church you go to? Yeah, so my, my dad is Church of the Nazarene. Um, okay. But I, I tell people all the time, it's just like, you know, I'm, at the end of the day, like, I just follow Jesus. You know, like, I've, I've, I've got the Holy Spirit in me. I, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, you know, and, and that's it. You know, I, I believe all truth leads to him. And that's just my personal testimony. Um, but that's just what I do, man. Every day, every day, I just, you know, all right, God, what do you want me to do? Right. He said it himself. I, I can only do what I see my father doing. He says that three separate times in the four gospels. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. Hey, that's, if that's good enough for Jesus, that's good enough for me. Yeah. I love it. That's uh, spot on. Well, I like to ask these people, the people on the show, if you had one thing to leave this audience with, that was most valuable to you that you just want to leave with. You got two minutes. I'm not going to interrupt you. You can talk religions, politics, faith, business, entrepreneurship, real estate, whatever you want that you would feel most valuable to share to this group. You got two minutes, Daniel. Here you go and uh, and take it over and then we'll close up. Yeah, uh, Shiba Inu to the moon, right? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, so the, the one thing I would say, I'll keep it very short, is you know focus on just being better than who you were yesterday. I think if you can do that, I think, I think people will be all right. I love it. Okay. Two minutes whittled down to, to 10. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Daniel, thank you so much again. Go follow the quack, the quack brothers, YouTube channel. We'll put it on the on, below on this page. You guys can go over and follow them, subscribe and, and like whatever it is on, on their channel. And then on this video as well, help us uh, share the good word. Daniel, thanks so much for coming on today. It's been a thank pleasure. you, sir. I'm honored. I really am. <laughs> okay. Thank you guys. See ya. Hey, it's Bridger here. I have four free and simple ways I can further help you to scale your business or fund. Number one, I have a YouTube channel with actually, I don't, to toot my own horn, I think it's decent content on there. Go check it out. Bridger Pennington is a YouTube channel. We go very deep on funds. Number two, I have a one hour free training at investmentfundsecrets.com. We go very deep into how to actually start and scale your very own fund from ground zero. Number three, you can join our free private Facebook group of like-minded people like me and you that go out and launch the scale of funds. I go live in there once a week. The name of the group is Investment Fund Secrets. And then number four, finally, I have a free PDF guide on how to actually launch and scale your fund. If you go to investmentfundsecrets.com slash guide, you can download that guide. Now, finally, people always ask me, Bridger, can you help me one-on-one? -on -one? Can we work together? Yes. I don't want to talk about that in here, but if you want to learn more, message me, Bridger at investmentfundsecrets.com or just DM me on Instagram. Thank you guys. And I'll see you in the next episode.